Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, a podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is episode 332, and on today's podcast, I talk to Quentin Watt about his research into the forgotten stories of Midland railway employers who served in the Great War. Quint spoke to me from his home in the Black Country. Quint, thank you very much for being here. Now, to, to kick things off, could you share what inspired you to embark on your research journey and what drew you to the unique stories of the Midland Railways service personnel? Um, well, there's quite a lot of background contextual stuff here that brought me to this topic, and it goes back a long, long time, as you can imagine. Um, I can't remember when I first became interested in the First World War. It's that long ago. Likewise, my interest in railways. Um, and as a boy in London, London in the London area, I spent a lot of time walking along disused railway lines and also some that weren't so disused. But please don't tell my mum. Uh, my affection, if you like, for the old Midland Railway um, is probably thanks to my family's annual visit to see my granny in Scotland. Now, that was my annual holiday, thanks to my dad. And we used to set off from St Pancras Station on the Thames Clyde Express from about 10 o'clock in the morning. And we arrived in Kilmarnock about 7 o'clock in the evening. Uh, a, a slow train through the East Midlands to Leeds and then the Settle and Carlisle line. And eventually arriving in Scotland late that night to be picked up by one of my uncles, who were the few members of the family who had a car. <clears throat> So that, the Midland always had a special place in my heart, I suppose. Now, I became a school teacher years later, and during my career, I used to organise pretty much annual school trips to the Western Front, as you do. And to try and make it relevant to the kids, I always used to say to them, well in advance, do a bit of family history research, find out if you've got any relatives who died in the war, and we'll make a particular point of finding their gravesite or the memorial they're listed on. Um, it made it interesting for the staff, really, because it meant that every year we would end up going to different places rather than all the regulars like the Menin Gate and the Tiapwa Memorial. Anyway, about 20 years ago, a boy came forward with a copy of the Midland Railway Roll of Honour, which was a book. And included in it was his relative. And his relative's name was Charles Tranter, Royal Field Artillery. And he worked at Bromsgrove because that's where I was a teacher. And he was a second ganger in the Way and Works Department. He was killed in action on the 15th of October 1917. And he was buried, well, I thought rather appropriately, in Railway Dugout Cemetery, which is at Zillybeek in Ypres. So many of you will know that one. So that's so, obviously, on that particular visit, we went to see that lad's relative. Now, I took a photocopy of this document on the school photocopier, of course, because it's about 80 pages long. And it alphabetically lists 2,833 men of the Midland Railway Company. And interestingly, it kind of breaks it down in columnar form. It's got their name, their rank in the army, and the regiment they fought with. And it also mentions their position for the railway company, what job they did, which department they came under, and which station they worked at. So you could literally do a gazetteer, if you like, of the whole of the Midland Railway network with stations with the casualties right across the map of, of England mainly, but goes into Scotland as well. 
Now, when I lived in Bromsgrove, because of the trips with the kids, I extracted the names of 34 men who came from just the Bromsgrove area. Now, Bromsgrove was once quite an important railway site because there was a wagon works next to the railway station where they built trucks. So that was my time working as a teacher. Now, I was still working as a teacher when I moved to Wolverhampton about 15 years ago. And it didn't take long for me to notice that on Wolverhampton Railway Station, there's a war memorial to men of the London and North Western Railway Company. Um, it's on the footbridge. And I thought, well, I wonder why there isn't one to the Midland men. And who were the Midland men? Because there must have been some. So I looked through the roll of honour and I basically discovered that there's the existence of a now completely forgotten railway line that used to run from Wolverhampton to Walsall via Wensfield and Willenhall. All the track has now been lifted, the, that section anyway, but then the line ran from Walsall via Sutton Coalfield round to the north, round to Castle Bromwich and Water Orton, pretty much close to where the Junction 4A of the M6 motorway is, and they're building or not building HS2 at the moment. So if you drive along that stretch of the motorway, you probably see all the building work going on. So it's a, a long stretch of line, and I discovered that there were 18 men who lived or worked on that stretch of line uh, who were killed in the First World War. So I wanted to find out their personal stories. Uh, but as a, a kind of addition to that, thanks to doing the First World War MA at Wolverhampton University, I know, now appreciate that my general interest actually has an academic angle, right? Um, many of you will know Professor John Bourne, and he wrote about the British working man in arms. And I'm keen now to investigate the lives of working class men and the links between their civilian, in this case, railway careers, and their military careers. I'll explain a little bit more about that a bit later on, if that's all right. So... Quinn, I've just thought that we talked about the Midland Railway, but we haven't described exactly what it is, where it ran and when it was formed. I don't know whether you could give us a brief background on this long, uh, I suppose it, it doesn't exist anymore, um, but I probably probably nationalised under British Rail. But what was it and where did it operate? Well, it was based in Derby. That was the centre. And like all of these railway companies in the Victorian era, they started off quite small and expanded by absorbing other small railway companies as they became uneconomical. Um, I've, the evidence I've got is just before the First World War, the Midland Railway was, in fact, the fourth largest private employer in the UK with 67,000 members of staff. So it was a significant operation. And, and the lines ran. I mean, the, the London's station was St Pancras, obviously, but its routes were mainly through the East Midlands up to the north of England, northwest. Um, but it had, you know, outliers going in different directions as well, obviously down towards Bromsgrove and lines down to the southwest too. So it was a big operation. Um, from As far as my research was concerned, what I was quite interested in was the guy who was chairman at the time of the First World War, and he was called George Murray Smith. Now, in the Dictionary of National Biography, the 2004 version, um, he's praised for the skillful way he steered the Midland Railway through the difficult times of the First World War. So he obviously did a good job. But what I'm quite interested in is the fact that this was referred to in the Dictionary of National Biography, a source beloved of lots of historians, because his father set up the Dictionary of National Biography, George Murray Smith Sr. So there's like a, a historical or historiographical link between these chaps. Anyway, um, when the war began, 
um, the government essentially nationalised the railway network. They set up something called the Railway Executive Committee. Now, there's a bit of a debate, I think, amongst railway historians about the extent to which it was. But essentially, the government took over the control of the railways. And one of their first edicts was to issue an instruction that all railwomen had to provide written proof of approval before they could join up. And this is because they expected railwomen to rush to the to, to the colours. They thought there would be a big surge. So this is an interesting idea about railwaymen as soldiers, not particularly railwaymen from the Midland Railway Company, but just generally about railwaymen. Um, now, what's the link between soldiers and railwomen, you ask? Well, according to a historian called Jeremy Higgins, who's written a book about this, he says that the occupations are often holistic, self-contained, and constrained by rules and rosters, arguably somewhat controlling. Now, I think Jeremy Higgins was a territorial, so he'd know something about being a soldier and what a railwoman might be. I think probably it boils down to the fact that there's a lot of teamwork involved in being a railwoman and a soldier. Plus, you also get a chance to wear a uniform, which I suppose might be significant in the minds of some people. Now, it's interesting that in my survey uh, of the 18 chaps, half of them had military experience, either as reservists or territorials before the war broke out. So that was definitely a, a trend there. So as you delved into the history of some of these men, what was some of the most surprising or unexpected discoveries that you, you made? And also, could you walk us through the broader context of the Middle, Middle and World War during the war and its and the significant role of railway men as soldiers, as you've always already signalled yeah. the war there to do? Yeah, if I talk a bit about the, uh, the history of the Midland in the war itself, first of all, um, well, I found quite interesting, and if we're talking about surprising things that you turn up when you do research, is that a really re useful source was the, uh, was the British newspaper archive. Um, because you can do a keyword search, you can find information in there. And what I found was that the annual reports which Murray Smith gave at the annual AGM were widely reported nationally. And you might think, why would somebody in Aberdeen really want to know about what the Midland Railway were doing? But they're all widely reported. And because he reported every year, you've got like a, a series of stepping stones through the war. And so, for example, the first report was in February 1915, and Murray Smith reported that 9,000 men had enlisted since the start of the war. And that was already causing a serious shortage of labour for the company. Um, and that 9,000, interestingly, represents 40% of the total number of men in the Midland Railway who enlisted throughout the war. So that proves there was an initial rush to the colours from railwomen. Um, of my 18 men, um, nine also joined, rejoined in those first two years of the war. So that they accurately reflect the picture for the rest of the, of, the, of the company. Now, by the end of the war, the number of total recruits for the Midland Railway was 22,941, or 31% of their total staff in 1914. Now, pretty much a third of the staff. Now, that did surprise me because not knowing a lot about railway history, I just tended to assume that all railwaymen were, if you like, reserved occupation, they wouldn't be allowed to go and fight, uh, but clearly they were. Who was allowed to go, we'll look at in a minute. 
I was quite interested to see that Murray Smith referred to women coming into the workforce to replace the men, which was quite interesting. Um, in fact, the Railway Executive Committee, even in February 1915, was starting to discuss the feasibility of using female labour. But they did make the point of obviously not engine drivers, firemen or or signalmen. They made that big caveat. But they were very... they were open to the prospect of women becoming booking clerks, parcel clerks, ticket collectors, dining car attendants and jobs like that. Surprise, surprise. Now, for the Midland, it's interesting you can work out how many women they had because in 1914, the Midland employed 1,400 women, but by 1918, that had risen to 9,000, which is quite a, a significant increase. Now, many of those women were actually working in munitions plants because they sited munitions plants, new ones anyway, next to the railway network. But a lot of those women were doing jobs as porters, loaders, checkers, ticket salespeople and stuff like that. Now, in terms of who went, who was allowed to get join up, it's quite clear that the biggest department of all, which there were they allowed men to join, were men who worked in the goods department. Uh, 25% of the goods department men joined up in the war. That was the highest one. And so therefore, anybody in the, who was a porter, an office clerk, or a general labourer would have been regarded as expendable, to use the current phrase. So they were allowed to go, whereas anybody had a, a kind of more serious job, like driving an engine, they weren't allowed to go. Um, one of the last things that Murray Smith did before he died, quite suddenly in in 1919 his final agm report he reported that up until the day of the armistice the midland had suffered 6934 casualties of whom 2096 were killed in action or died of wounds now what's interesting to me is the fact that when the roll of honor was printed in 1921 they had increased that total from 2096 to 2833 so that means 737 men, or 20%, 26% of the total, died in the three years after the armistice, which I think is interesting. I assume this is because the Midland kept very accurate records about their employees coming back after the war and monitored what they were doing. And a bit later on, we're going to look at an example of a sapper whose death was not initially recorded by the Imperial War Graves Commission but whose name appeared on the 1921 Roll of Honour. So some of my research and the story of the Midland has flagged up what I think is an issue to do with the accuracy of post-war data to do with war deaths. Um, now, normally people refer to the... There was a national um, comm commemoration service at St Paul's Cathedral on the 14th of May 1919, where the Order of Service listed that there were nationally... 19,195 railwomen fatalities. However, Jeremy Higgins, who I've referred to before, um, he's done research into records like the Midland Roll of Honour for all the different companies, and he's come up with a revised total of 21,517. So that means they've discovered an additional 2,322 railwomen who died in the Great War. Um, now, 
this statistical analysis would would indicate or suggest that um, well, how accurate are the figures that we have for total fatalities across the whole United Kingdom? I mean, I'm not an expert in this, and I'm, and perhaps this anomaly has been baked into modern research that people do when they calculate the total cost of the war. But when you see these aberrations, it kind of gets the old the wheels ticking, and you think, oh, actually, might that indicate a, a wider issue which nobody's picked up on yet? So. In terms of commitment, I think it would show that the, the Midland played a big part in the war and notwithstanding its normal routine jobs of transporting goods and men around the country, um, as well as that, lots of them did join up. And there's a war memorial in Derby um, commissioned. And I think this Roll of Honour booklet was created probably to give to relatives who couldn't come to the unveiling of ceremony um, and I think that might have been because they just couldn't cope with the number of people who might turn up, possibly. But that was actually unveiled on the 15th of December 1921. And the memorial is a cenotaph and it was designed by Lutchens, just like the one in London. Well, I thought it's interesting completing the circle there. So let's explore the specific area covered by the Midland Railways line stretching from Wolverhampton to Castle Bromwich via Warsaw and Sutton Coalfield. How did the history of this railway line intersect with the experience of the soldiers that you researched? Well, I don't know how good your knowledge or geographical knowledge of the West Midlands is. <laughs> um, basically, uh, a railway line from Wal- Wolverhampton to Walsall first opened in 1871, um, but it was then operated by the London Northwestern Railway Company, who they quickly sold it to the Midland in 1876. And that's the reason why the Midland Railway Line, watch, trains on it anyway could use what in those days was called Wolverhampton High Level Railway Station and that's the one that still exists today. The line from Walsall eastwards to Castle Bromwich opened in 1879 but that was actually already part of the Midland Railway. The little network I've been looking at also included a five mile branch line which ran from Aldridge northwards to Brown Hills on Old Watling Street and that went via Walsall Wood. Um, Unfortunately, the line was an economic failure virtually from day one, like lots of these little railway lines, and Bentley Station uh, closed as early as 1898, so it's only about 20 years after it opened, and Heathtown Station, and Heathtown is close to the centre of Wolverhampton, that closed in 1910. The whole line from Wolverhampton to Walsall was closed in 1931, but they still ran goods trains on it up until the 1960s. That stopped, however, because the line was completely severed when they built the M6 motorway in 1964. And what was Bentley Railway Station? Well, if ever you drive up and down the M6, just north of Junction 10, which has been had a lot of redevelopment work in the last couple of years, just north of Junction 10, you drive through Bentley Railway Station because it's under the motorway. So that's where we're talking about. Now, you can still walk a considerable part of the bit from Wolverhampton to the M6. And I've done that. And that brings back lots of happy boyhood memories of wandering along disused railway lines. The line from Walsall to the east still exists. I've not walked along that one yet. Um, And the Midland Roll Roll of Honour does record the names of 18 men. And they worked pretty much across the whole of the length of the line from Wolverhampton in the west all the way across to Castle Bromwich and Water Orton. And there's clusters of two groups of four men at Wolverhampton Goods Station and another group of four men at 
Walsall, good station. I think we might be going to talk about possibly one of those guys soon. So one of the soldiers you highlighted in your research was a porter called William Henry Bland. He worked at the Walsall Midland Railway Goods Depot. Now, his journey from musician in the regimental band to a soldier on the front lines is intriguing. Can you can you provide more insight about his uh, wartime career and his pre-war life? Yeah. So William Bland is a, an interesting chap. Um, he was he was the first man to die from a group of four soldiers who worked at the Midland Depot in Warsaw. In this case, as a porter. So I'm guessing his job would have been a lot of sorting out of crates of produce, moving things around, transferring stuff to road wagons, and for it to be shipped around the town or the local area. But really, this was a new career for him, working in the in for the Midland Railway. He'd been born in 1886 um, and was an experienced soldier having joined the 1st Battalion of the South Staffordshire Regiment in October 1903. And during the course of the next 10 years, he served in several places that we know about. He was in the Transvaal, obviously straight after the South African War, in Ireland. And he spent the last couple of years of his military career in Gibraltar, 1911 to 13. Now, this was probably what you might call routine garrison duty, Um and I thought it was interesting. In the 1911 census, he was recorded as a musician. And according to his obituary in the paper, he played the saxophone in the regimental band. And there is a photograph of him and the regimental band with his saxophone. Now, I suppose it's my ignorance. I didn't think the British Army had saxophonists before the First World War. But that's, as I say, that just shows how little I know. But it's interesting that he was a musician anyway. But by 1914, He's got a trade union card which shows he was a member of the Warsaw branch of the National Union of Railwaymen. And his occupation on that card was listed as a goods porter. And he lived at Cairns Street in Warsaw at the time with his parents. So he clearly never got married. Now, when the war broke out, he was recalled to the colours. But his regiment, the 1st South Staffordshire, were in South Africa. So instead, he was posted to the 2nd South Staffs. And then on the 12th of August, 1914, he sailed from Southampton to Larve aboard the Irrawaddy. And four days later, him and the South Staffs arrived at Wazigny near the Belgian border. And I guess you all know what the story then would be afterwards. Um, the 2nd South Staffs took part in the retreat from Mons. They were on the Marne, the Battle of the Aisne. And then on the 17th of October... They were deployed north to Ypres and they took part in the Battle of Langemark. Everything seemed to be going well. Um, in early November, his family received what turned out to be his final field postcard home, which stated all was well. However, uh, concerns were first raised amongst his family when the army sent a, back to them a packet of cigarettes, which were addressed to him as untraceable. So that's when they first realised something might be up. And sadly, confirmation of his death, which actually took place on the 13th of November 1914, arranged, arrived in early December when a letter was published in a newspaper from a wounded comrade who was engaged in the same railway department and in an adjoining bed to Bland in hospital before he succumbed to his wound. And that unnamed comrade, who clearly also worked for the Midland, uh, explained that both men had been in the thick of the fighting in Belgium, which is, I suppose, a reference to the First Battle of Ypres. Uh, on the 1st of November, the 2nd South Staffs, we know, were in a wooded country near Molenhoek, 
and for a week the battalion was left holding the most advanced line of the whole British army, constantly being shelled. Um, they suffered particularly heavy casualties when they mounted a counterattack against the Germans at Klein Zillebeck on the 7th of November 14. And I suspect Bland was possibly wounded in that action. I don't know for sure, but I'm looking for when he could have been injured. And there he was taken to the casualty clearing station where he died. Also appropriately, though, he was buried in Railway Chateau Cemetery, which is just west of Reap, um, close to the casualty clearing station, probably where he was being treated, and also very close to the uh, hostel where we used to stay on our school trips, <laughs> very ironically. Um, I never visited, visited him before, but this May I did actually make a, a, a pilgrimage to his gravesite and actually paid my... Uh, Paid my respects to him there. Uh, according to the separation allowance file in Walsall Local History Centre, his mum, Sophia, received a pension of eight shillings and sixpence a week, starting on the 27th of July, 1915. And that document, that separation allowance file in Walsall, is a wonderful document, huge, great document. Um, if ever you get a chance to kind of have a look at it, I'll recommend it. And poor William Bland was only 28 when he died. The saxophonist. So the details of Bland's service and eventual sacrifice shed light on the challenges faced by these railway-turned-soldiers. Could you uh, share some more stories of other men you've researched, offering a glimpse of their civilian and military lives? Yeah, I've got about four or five other chaps I think are worth mentioning. and um, I'll, I'll deal with them in date order of when they died. There was a chap called Harry Taylor, who was another experienced soldier, and he worked at Wolverhampton High Level Station as a labourer for the Wayham Works Department. Now, Wayham Works came under the Engineers Department, and Taylor was a member of a team of at least six other men who were supervised by a ganger and a sub-ganger. And their job was, if you like, to look after the track, the permanent way, track and ballast in the vicinity of Wolverhampton Station. Now, I regard that as a particularly tough job to have to do and very very risky you had to be out in all weather and you had the imminent danger of express trains flying past you at a great speed now in my mind that links with john bourne's explanation of how working class men coped with the grim conditions on the western front in other words their pre-war working life was just as dangerous and grim it would be fl trains flying by rather than German shells that they've had to worry about. So there was a, a certain degree of continuity in their experience. Now, in 1901, the census records Harry being stationed in Wrexham with the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. He was listed in the 5th Provisional Battalion, which I think was a unit they had before the Territorial Force was created. And we think he probably enlisted for seven years with the Colours and five in the Reserve which I think was quite normal. But by 1911, he was living at 12 Ward Street, Wolverhampton, with his wife Anne Maria and his daughter Maud. And his occupation was listed as Railway Company Plate Layers Labourer. Harry was called up in September 1914 as a Section D reservist for the 1st Battalion of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. And he crossed from Southampton to Zeebrugge on the 7th of October. Um, after a brief excursion to Ghent, his regiment took their place on the Western Front, where he fought for the next six months or so. Sadly, he was killed 
on the first day of the Battle of Festubert, 16th of May, 1915, aged 33. The day before, uh, the Royal Welsh Fusiliers men, 806 NCOs and 25 officers, were ordered to the front line. And following a British bombardment of the German trenches, which lasted exactly 31 minutes, Taylor and his pals went over the top at 3.15am on the 16th of May. Uh, the enemy line was breached and a thousand yard breakthrough made just south of a strong point called the quadrilateral. However, the Royal Welsh casualties were crippling 221 dead and hundreds more wounded, around 60% of the total number involved in the whole operation. And by the time they withdrew from the attack, Harry Taylor was listed as killed in action. His body was never recovered and therefore he's commemorated on the Latoure Memorial between Bethune and Lille. So that's poor Harry. The next next chap worthy of mention, I think, was Peter Conway. Uh, at 19, he's the youngest Midland casualty on the line and the only one to die in the Gallipoli campaign. He was based at Wensfield Station, where he's listed as being a porter in the traffic coaching section. And what this meant was he assisted the station master with the day-to-day running of the station, dealing with passengers, Handling small goods, maybe, parcels and stuff, and lighting the gas lamp. I suppose the kind of jobs a young youngster would be given to do. He enlisted in the 7th Service Battalion of the South Staffordshire Regiment at Litchfield in August 1914. And we know that the battalion moved to Grantham for training until April. And then it was posted to Frencham, Frencham Camp in Surrey. On the 1st of July 1915... The 750 men of the 7th South Staff set off from Liverpool for the Mediterranean aboard His Majesty's troop ship Empress of Britain. And the ship docked first at Alexandria before then being sent to Mudros, which arrived on the 18th of July. Uh, I always think about this next bit. It must be quite eerie. Uh, on the 21st of July, Conway and his comrades were landed at V Beach, Cape Helles, probably going past the River Clyde. On the Gallipoli Peninsula, spent the next four days preparing a rest camp. Uh, they took over reserve trenches on the slopes of Akibaba, where, according to the regimental history, the parapets were built up of the bodies of dead British and Turks, and this, which smelt abominably and attracted millions of loathsome flies. On the 25th of July, they went into the firing line to relieve the Drake and Plymouth battalions of the Royal Naval Division. And it was on that day that Peter Conway became one of the battalion's very first casualties. It was when they were moving forward to a position known as the Horseshoe. How he died is not recorded. On the 28th of July, the 7th Staffs were redeployed to Imbros before then taking part in the attack or the landings of Suvla Bay on 6th, 7th of August. But Peter Conway is buried in the Redoubt Cemetery at Helles. I've not been to see that, but hopefully one day am I. Uh, another old soldier was George Bowers. Now, he worked at Wolverhampton's goods depot in Wensfield Road, and he must have known Harry Taylor, who we mentioned a moment ago. Um, he was also a reservist in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. He was born in Eccleshaw in Staffordshire, and he worked as a gardener at Chillington Hall, which is a, a big property near Brood in South Staffordshire. And like Harry Taylor, Bowers was immediately recalled when the war began. Now, he's somebody who actually died in the Battle of the Somme when the Royal Welsh Fusiliers were involved in the capture of Flatiron Copse and High Wood. According to the uh, 
Battalion Diary, between 3am and 8am on the 20th of July, Bowers and his pals came under sustained German shell fire and met, sustained many casualties as they waited to move off to their jumping off positions. Uh, the intensity of the bombardment diminished late morning and the battalion eventually entered the front line at 2pm from where they took part in an attack that successfully cleared the enemy from the woods. In this attack, 29 other ranks were killed and 180 were wounded, 29 listed as missing. However, George Bowers was probably killed earlier that day during the German bombardment, and he's buried in Caterpillar Valley Cemetery near Longwell. Now, one of the 11 officers seriously wounded in that same action was the writer, Captain Robert Graves, who everyone will have heard of. And in Goodbye to All That, he later wrote, we lost a third of our battalion before the show started, and I was one of the casualties. So too was George Bowers, the Midland Railway Porter. James Holbert is an interesting character, uh, based at Wolverhampton Station before the war. He was a constable with the Railway Police. He pre also previously served in the Army, having enlisted into the 2nd Battalion of the Bedfordshire Regiment in February 1897. He spent much of the next 12 years in India and transferred into the Number 9 Mountain Battery of the Royal Garrison Artillery. But he was discharged from the Army in April 1909, and he probably began his career in the Railway Police soon afterwards. He probably spent his time, like Railway Police do today, chasing fair dodgers and trespassers, although there were some notable railway robberies on the Black Country in 1914, but that's a story for another time, I suspect. Um, he re-enlisted in April 1915, but wasn't posted for duty until the 29th of July 1916, when he joined the 3rd Battalion, the Bedfordshire Regiment. I suppose given his age, uh, they didn't send him to the Western Front for a long time, and he eventually was sent overseas on the 31st of January 1918. And after a brief time at L Infantry Base Calais, he transferred to the 1st Battalion, North Staffordshire Regiment, as an acting corporal. So up until this point, poor James Holbert has had a pretty quiet war. You can probably guess what's going to happen next, because in, he was deployed to a regiment who were in the front line just north of Saint-Cantan at a place called Pontray. And according to the North Staff's Battalion War Diary, just as he arrived, information was received from intelligence reports that an enemy offensive was to commence on the morning of the 21st. Prisoners captured on the 20th confirmed this, giving details, etc. So, Holbert arrives in the front line to suddenly find himself having to make last-minute preparations for the imminent German spring offensive, Der Kaiserschlacht, which began exactly as predicted at 4.30 on the morning of the 21st of March, with an enormous enemy bar barrage, and within 15 minutes, communications with all other units nearby, were completely cut. As the 1st North Staffs waited for the German infantry to arrive, they were also disorientated by gas and fog, as is well known, and by 11am, they received the news that the enemy had broken through nearby and the battalion HQ had been completely abandoned. So they were on their own, and not surprisingly, Holbert became a prisoner of war. Uh, German documents indicate that he was actually placed under the aus auspices of Stendhal Camp 
in Saxony-Anhalt, but this was just for administrative purposes because he appears to have actually spent most of the next five months working for the German army, very close to where he'd been captured on the 21st of March, which I think was quite normal. His end came in August when he fell ill and was admitted to the German military hospital at Boain, northeast of Saint-Quentin. And it was here he died on the 12th of August from Infolge Darmkatar, which I think is enteritis, inflammation of the small intestine, which was probably been brought on by eating contaminated food. I think probably by that stage of the war, the Germans were eating pretty much anything they could get hold of, and they would give the, the dregs to the British prisoners of war. According to the German Totenlister, Holbert was buried in plot 525 of what became Bohain Station Military Cemetery. But after the war, his body was exhumed and reinterred at Premont British Cemetery, which is about 15 miles north-northeast of Saint-Quentin. At the time of his death, he lived in St Andrews Road, Small Heath, Birmingham. But the pension records indicate that his wife and small ch three small children had moved to Portsmouth in the 1920s. So... As a guy who had a, a very short but abrupt war, um, spent a lot of time hanging around, and then it all ended very, very quickly. Right, William Paddock. The last two chaps, William Paddock is the first, with guys who actually, their military career linked directly to their pre-war career. He was a, Paddock was a porter at Walsall Goods Depot, and he was a youngish man. He'd only been born in 1894. And in the 1911 census says he was working in a woolen warehouse. He enlisted in Wolverhampton and became the first soldier in my survey whose role had a direct military connection. In that he was a sapper in the 96th Light Railway Operating Company of the Royal Engineers. Uh, Paddock was also the only casualty in my sample to die at sea when the convoy carrying him to fight in Palestine was attacked by the German U-boat UC-34 on the 30th of December 1917. The ship he was on was His Majesty's Transport, Aragon, and for some reason which people still can't work out, Aragon was told to wait out from the, the coast within sight of Egypt before permission was granted for it to approach Alexandria Harbour. And people said that made it very vulnerable to U-boat attack, and eyewitnesses Eyewitness accounts claimed a torpedo struck the transport ship with a terrific crash at 9am on the 30th of December, and the ship foundered in only 15 minutes. As it was going down, a destroyer, HMS Attack, attempted to pick up survivors, but itself was completely cut in two by a second torpedo from UC-34, which left loads of people struggling in the sea and they had to be rescued by trawlers, which were kind of rushed to the scene from the coast. But in spite of all this confusion, every one of the 160 VAD nurses who were on board Aragon were rescued safely. But that wasn't the same story for the troops. Um, Lieutenant H.E. Hinchcliffe, Royal Engineers, was quoted as saying, the losses amongst our boys was appalling, and it nearly broke my heart when we called the roll next morning. In the event, 610 soldiers and crew aboard Aragon were drowned, including at least 77 railwaymen of the 96 Light Railway Operating Company, including Paddock. And this was probably the worst single day for railwaymen casualties during the whole war. Paddock's body was never recovered, and he's commemorated on the Hadra Memorial in Alexandria. But his story has a link 
with the last casualty I want to mention, and he is Charles Houghton. Now, the Midland Railway Roll of Honour says Charles Reginald Houghton was a porter in the coaching section traffic at Aldridge Station, but his army records say he was a shunter. Don't know why. Now, Houghton came from a railway family based on another part of the Midland Railway network south of Birmingham. His father, George, was a signalman on the line at Defford, which is near Pershaw. And at the time of the 1911 census, the family were living at number three railway terrace Stoke Works near Bromsgrove. That is very close to where I spent the entirety of my 39 years as a teacher at South Bromsgrove High School. I never knew it at the time, but now I know. Now, like Paddock, Houghton became a sapper with the 96 Light Railway Operating Company when he enlisted in June 1917. His Silver War badge role indicates he was discharged from military service due to sickness on the 30th of October 1918 and issued with his badge two days before the armistice. But he eventually died in Bromsgrove Cottage Hospital on the 11th of March 1920 due to, one, an injury to his pelvis and spine, and two, a psoas abscess. Now, I think this suggests he never recovered from the medical condition that caused him to be medically discharged from the army 17 months earlier. When you look at Houghton's army papers, you can just about make out that he was also on board HMT Aragon when it was sunk on the 30th December 1917. And I suspect he was probably injured, maybe the pelvic and spinal injury, in the sinking. Now, the Commonwealth Wargrave website records Houghton's name on panel five of the Brookwood Memorial in Surrey. Now, I believe this is for service personnel who died in the care of their families after the war, but whose burial site was never confirmed with the then Imperial Wargraves Commission. So I've tracked down the date of Houghton's burial and its location. And he's buried in St. Godwald's Cemetery, which is a small cemetery in Finstall near Bromsgrove. And he was buried on the 16th of March, 1920. Now, the cemetery is right next to the railway line at the bottom of what's known as the Licky Incline. And railway buffs will know that that is the steepest stretch of mainline railway line in the whole of the country. And also, therefore, think that this guy, Houghton, is one of the unaccounted for war casualties, identified, well, he is, because he's also identified in the Midland Railway Roll of Honour. So he's one of the kind of, he's fallen through the statistical net, if you like. Now, when I did the research for the article I wrote, I, I got in touch with this group of people called the In From The Cold Organisation, and they try and track down records of people who should have a Commonwealth War Graves headstone and haven't got one. And so, therefore, I think that is a work in progress at the moment. But ultimately, I would hope that he would have a proper headstone because I think he he's worthy of it. So those are the guys who I think are worth mentioning. But obviously, there are 18 men altogether, each, each with their own interesting story. But I've just picked up some of the ones I thought you might like to hear about. So with reference to those men, what type of store, um, start that question again. So with reference to those men, what type of sources and resources did you um, actually use to actually reconstruct their civilian and military lives? Well, I found the, the, the number one primary source, apart from the role of honour itself, which I think is interesting, uh, the British newspaper archive has a lot more information on it to do with the First World War than I think a lot of what we might call 
usual World War One historians would assume. I think you tend to assume that all the newspapers were censored and they don't include much information. Well, that's not true for local newspapers. It was only the national press that was censored, not the local newspapers. So that's an ideal source. Um, the other primary source, obviously, is the Midland Roll of Honour. Um, obviously, I've just done a quick bit of research into the Midland Railway, but there were 120 separate railway companies before they were all grouped together in 1923. And I'd imagine you could research the Glasgow and Southwestern, the Caledonian, the Northeastern Railway, you know, you name it. You'd probably find all sorts of stuff if you wanted to go into it. In terms of secondary sources, um, I've quoted him a couple of times already. Jeremy Higgins wrote a book called Great War Railwaymen, which I think is very, very good. It was also inspired by him looking at a war memorial on his local railway station, which is interesting. Um, if we go back a bit, there's a book by a chap called Edwin A. Pratt, British Railways and the Great War. And that is a mine of information. But if you buy it on Amazon, beware, because it comes in two parts. And I think they will only ever give you the first volume. And the stuff about the Midland Railways in volume two. So I had to access that online. There's obviously various regimental histories, um, South Staffordshire Regiment. And of course, I'd have to recommend the book which I edited about Wolverhampton's Great War, because there's the article I wrote about all of this in there, which goes into far greater detail than I'm able to explain to you this morning. Um, so if you can get hold of that, you can get hold of it on Amazon. But to be honest with you, you'd probably be better getting hold of it directly from me. I'm not sure if the WFA have got a way of advertising my email address. I'm more than happy for people if they want to get hold of a copy to make direct. I would suggest people contact me at press at westernfrontassociation.com and we'll take it from there. And that brings me neatly to my last question, which is, uh, Quinn, thinking about all the research you've done over over the time how does this shape your understanding of the period and what sort of broader themes and lessons can we draw from the experience experiences of these forgotten servicemen and railwaymen yeah i mean i'd like to add to that the kind of i suppose that kind of question you'd always had which is um where would you go you wanted to take this research further what how what's the next step i suppose you're thinking about now i suppose this what i've done is what i think nowadays is called a micro history project I've studied just 18 men. They work for a specific company in a very precise geographical area. But what I found was that the stories of those 18 men accurately reflected most soldiers' experiences of the Great War. In other words, you could tell the story, the big events of the First World War, just by what happened to these 18 guys. So therefore, I think it shows in a way, Some, I think sometimes people are put off doing research because they think the Great War is such an enormous topic how can I get into it? And I think this demonstrates a manageable way to kind of ease yourself in to the Great War. And I'll run, I'll certainly recommend to people, if anybody's listening now, I'd certainly recommend to them that if they have an interest in a particular local railway before 1923 in their area, try it out, see what you can find out. My caveat, though, my warning is, and I, I think this a lot because of my research more recently has alerted me to this, is the fact that if you focus your Great War research on a roll of honour, or as many people do, their local war memorial, it's only going to give you a partial picture of the experience of men in the war. For a start off, it's not going to end well. And you've got to remind yourself, the vast majority of men actually came home from the Great War, albeit they may have been affected 
physically or mentally by it. But actually, if you focus on the dead soldiers, you are concentrating on a minority. So I would like to know more about all Midland Railway men, including those who came home okay, or the wounded ones as well. Like the chap who was in the bed next to William Bland at How did the war affect their lives and careers? What jobs did they have before 1940? And did they go back to working for them, like the Midland Railway, once they were demobilised? Now the 1921 census is available to investigate, you can actually do a, a before, middle and after kind of research, which I'm quite interested in doing. Um, so therefore, uh, the question is, to what extent was there continuity of working class men's experience? Um, I think there's been quite a lot of research done recently in Australia, I've I found, talking about soldiers and how the war affected them. Um, as a, a historian, a chap called Edward Washington wrote an article in the Historian magazine a couple of years ago, and he researched men who worked for the Royal Mint in Sydney. And he made the point that when a man put on his uniform, he did not lose his pre-war identity. And that kind of maintaining identity throughout the war and then coming out at the other end is something which I'm I'm quite interested in. It's all all sounds very sociological. And I know John Terrain, when he was around uh, wrote that a certain new history of the First World War was becoming sociology, not history. Uh, but I tend to think that they are all the same thing, really. But So that's that's where I would go if I was doing this again. And, we're, I'm, and I'm, I've got one or two projects in the pipeline where I'm going to do exactly this, but not to do with the Midland Railway, moving on to other topics. Well, on that bombshell, Quint, thank you very much for your time. And we look forward to, to hearing about those projects in the future. So we, we have a date online somewhere on a podcast near you. So on that, I say thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Krish Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.